Take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our, and our sermon text today. We're going to be looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11. So I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Romans, chapter 11. And we're going to look together at verses 13 through verse 24. This is Romans 11. 13 to 24, I'm going to ask if you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, His people. This is what God's word says. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word today. May we hear your voice sounding forth from your holy scriptures that you've inspired by your Holy Spirit. And may the sound of your voice echo in our souls and make us new. Write your truth upon our hearts so that we may be changed and conformed more into the image of Christ. You be our teacher today. You be the one who gives us the grace to hear and to obey and give us the faith to believe. Be glorified in this time and speak to us from your word, we pray, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. In my recent newsletter article in our monthly church 
newsletter, I wrote uh, a, little, a little article, a little devotional, well, something of a devotional. And I think it's so important that I wanted to actually preach that topic in this sermon, especially in light of the fact that we had two baptisms today, two infant baptisms today. I've often heard it said, God has no grandchildren. Have you ever heard of that before? Have you ever heard that slogan before? I see a couple of nods, a couple of no, what's that mean? Yeah, I've heard that growing up. I've heard that different times. God has no grandchildren. Now, the best I can tell, this statement means to say that no one is born a Christian. That's what I think it means. Each person stands before God as an individual, and each must believe for himself or for herself. We can't rely on the faith of our parents or our grandparents. When we believe in Jesus for ourselves, we become children of God, and not a moment before. And when those children of God have children, those babies are not Christians. They are not included among God's people until they believe too. So God has no grandchildren. I think that's what it means. I do not in the slightest, believe that this is biblical. Parts of it are right. Parts of it sound right. Yes, each of us must answer to God for ourselves. Each of us have to believe for ourselves. So-and-so, grandma can't believe for me, and I get in on her faith. I don't get to slide in because somebody else believed for me. That's right. I think that's right. Uh, but it's a mistake to jump from, I have to believe for myself, otherwise I can't be saved, to then saying that the children of believers have nothing to do with Christ or the church or his covenant or his promises, that they're totally separated, that all those kids of believing parents are reprobates, going to hell, lost in their sin, can't please God. It's, they're just little hellions waiting to unleash their, the hell in their hearts on their poor, poor parents. Now, that's half true. <laughs> Maybe that's half true. I don't have any kids yet, so don't, don't, don't give me any spoilers. It's a mistake, though, to say, okay, because they need to come to faith in Jesus, they have nothing to do with Jesus until that moment. They're not Christians. They're not in the church. God has no grandchildren. I don't believe that's biblical. As Reformed Christians, we believe the Bible teaches that God takes great interest in our children, and even in our grandchildren. We believe Scripture when it speaks of God's promises and covenant commitments to generation after generation of those who keep His covenant. So why did the church move away from this covenantal vision for the people of God? That children have a rightful place in the covenant, that it wasn't a big useless sin that we committed this morning by baptizing two children. There are many, many Christians who would have burst into flames by watching that happen. Who think that it's utterly useless. Nothing happens when you do that. In fact, it's contrary to the Bible and it's a sin if you, if you know it's wrong and you do it anyways. So why was that not a sin? Why was that not disobedience to the Word of God, what we did earlier? 
And, and how in the world did we get to the point where we actually thought it would be a sin? Or unbiblical? Where do slogans like, God has no grandchildren, come from in the first place? And what does the Bible actually have to say on the place of children in God's covenant family? That's where we're going to go this morning. So first, where does this slogan, God has no grandchildren, come from? Why do people believe it? Why does it sound right to so many? Perhaps it sounds right to some of you. If you are a good American evangelical, it probably does sound right. Notice I said a good American evangelical. I hope we're all good American evangelicals in at least some sense. But if you are one, it probably does sound right. The problem, however, is that being a good American evangelical, in this case, not in every case, in this case, on this issue, has led us astray. From its inception in the mid-1700s, around the time this congregation was founded, right, 1735, just a few years later in the 1740s, when the Great Awakening takes place, right around the time of the founding of this church, 300 some odd years or 200 some odd years ago, back before this was even a country. From its inception in that time period, American evangelicalism, which was born in the Great Awakening, has been defined by at least three essential features. So let me highlight these quickly for us. Three essential features of good American evangelicalism. First is individualism. Individualism. Historically, our political and social and economic instincts and institutions in America have emphasized the independence of the common man, the virtue of self-reliance, and the universal call to personal responsibility. Individualism. Each person is his own man, his own woman, and must do for himself or herself, must make their own way. Self-reliance. Individualism. That's number one. Second is revivalism. Revivalism. This is directly from the Great Awakening. Revivalism stresses the necessity of being born again through a personal conversion experience. Responding to an altar call. Making a decision for Christ on the spot. That's revivalism. That's what Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the great preachers of the Great Awakening who did tremendous good and were blessed and used by God. But out of that movement came this idea that if you don't have a come to Jesus, life altering, come down the aisle, meet the Lord and get knocked off your feet experience, you're not saved. And that's why we have big tent revivals. And that's why it's lasted from the 1730s and 40s. And there are people who still do it today. And I'm not saying it's wrong or sinful to do it. And I'm not saying the Lord doesn't use it. Maybe you got saved at one of those. Praise God. But the idea that it gives us is that if we don't cook up some experiences, we haven't met with the Lord. So if you come to church and you don't feel like raising your hands at any point in the service or you don't get excited, well, I guess God wasn't there this Sunday. Well, maybe next Sunday the preacher will pray a little harder and, you know, maybe the, maybe the Spirit will come. I don't know. Just nothing happened today. Revivalism wants to cultivate those sorts of emotional, enthusiastic experiences and outcomes. 
revivalism. Third feature of good American evangelicalism is pietism. Pietism elevates the heart over the head. Experience over knowledge. Which means Christianity is primarily about feeling, about devotion, about passion. Pietism says the distinguishing mark of being a, quote, real Christian is having a personal, experiential relationship with Christ that is unmediated by the church and the sacraments, where each soul deals with God directly. So that God and your soul, there's nothing in between the two. Your body isn't in between you and your soul and God. Sacraments certainly aren't in between your soul and God. A physical book like the Bible's not in between your soul and God. It's just God's immaterial power and spirit acting directly on your soul, bypassing the physical. And that being a good Christian, being a real Christian, means having this unmediated direct experience of God where everything is about feeling God inside and having this devotion and passion. Now, there are good elements of all three of these. You do have to be born again to be a Christian. That's Revivalism got that one right. You do stand or fall before God on the basis of whether or not you have trusted Jesus. That's right about individualism. And pietism, you should have some devotion for Jesus, some stirring, some love, something happening on the inside. Right? So all these things have good pieces and elements, but when you take them too far and push them to their extreme and go beyond the bounds of the Bible and then mix them together and then throw in a little bit of American history from then till now, and here we are, good American evangelicalism. And I'll tell you, it is essentially a Baptist brand of Christianity. It's a Baptist's brand of Christianity, not a Presbyterian brand of Christianity. While there is much we can learn from and be grateful for in this evangelical heritage, and while there's much we can celebrate about our dear brothers and sisters who are Baptists, who would be like, don't you get those babies wet, get, get that water away from them, <laughs> right? While there's much we can celebrate and love and agree with, with our Baptist brothers and sisters, they come at things from a whole different starting point than we do as Reformed and Presbyterian Christians. There's much to be grateful for in, this, in these three features. But they have led us astray when it comes to the place of children in God's family. This mix of individualism, revivalism, and pietism, not the Bible, is where the statement God has no grandchildren comes from. That is a Baptist idea and a statement no Presbyterian should ever say. Which just goes to show how Baptist some Presbyterians have become. Baptitarians. When I was in seminary, uh, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, right, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, pastor, scholar, theologian, Ligon Duncan. The great Ligon Duncan down in Mississippi. He is the... Chancellor, the president of the whole of all the campuses. I went to the Charlotte, North Carolina campus. He's in Mississippi. There's like two or three others. It's a big thing. And he sort of sits over the whole thing. He was visiting our campus in Charlotte. And he came to one of our classes. And he had 45 minutes. He could have taken as long as he wants because he's the president, chancellor. 
And he said, I, I want to speak to speak to your class. And so Dr. Kara was happy to give him the floor. And, he, t- and he, he talked to us for maybe 10 minutes, and then he just took questions. And then he told us in the midst of, those, of that Q&A, it was a wonderful time. He told us in the midst of this Q&A, he said, he said, I know you guys. You've been in seminary for like two decades. He was talking about me. You've been in seminary for years and years and years. You've been reading all these big, thick theology books and digging into all this scholarship. And, you know, and, and that's good. You've got to learn all that stuff. We're, we're busy becoming the masters of divinity. You've got to read 800 pages books to do that. He says, in the midst of all this theology and history, and se- you're going to get into your, to your local churches, and they're not going to care about those big books. <laughs> they don't want to read them. They hadn't heard of them. And this wasn't a complaint. This was just him making an observation of fact. They don't have time for that. They got jobs and families and stuff, and then you'll have families, but part of your job is to read the big books, and they don't care about that. And what you'll find is you want to get in there and get in the pulpit and preach, the, you know, use all the big words and you know, give them the Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew and, and, and get, on, get into all this theology stuff. But that's because you're used to talking to your fellow seminary students. Those folks aren't operating on that level. Now, maybe some of them are, depending on the congregation you're in. But for the most part, that's just not where they are. So you need to meet them where they are. And he says, and when you come down and meet them where they are, what you're going to realize is, most of your good, solid Presbyterian churches are as Baptist as they can be. And he's, he's talking from experience. He says, I've been to Baptist churches where the elders of the church are like, what do you mean we baptize babies? <laughs> what? <laughs> How did you become an elder in a Presbyterian church and you didn't know we baptized babies? Well, what do you mean Calvinism? I don't like Calvin. I don't believe in that predestination stuff. It's like we're Presbyterians. Where did you come from? <laughs> how, did, how did we miss this? And he said, it's because evangelicalism has just sort of flattened everything out into a basic sort of Baptist brand of Christianity. And he says, and when you get into these Presbyterian churches, you're going to have to start from scratch with some of them. Not all of them, not every person, but some of them you will. To rebuild those Presbyterian foundations, those Reformed and Biblical foundations. And that's truly what's happened in many cases. That's why I'm addressing it today. So that's first. Where does this slogan come from? This mix of individualism, revivalism, and pietism. Now, second, let's turn to the scriptures and see what the Bible actually teaches about God's covenant family and and the place of children in that covenant. Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive and go through this whole passage and break it apart in every little detail. We're just going to highlight some things that I think makes the point. So, in the Bible and throughout history, God has always dealt with his people on the basis of his covenant. From day one, God brought his covenant people into existence with the call of Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God said to Abraham to come out from among your father, your father's house, your father's country, the land you grew up in. Separate yourself from your family and your heritage and everything that you hold dear about who you are. Come out and be separate 
and belong to me and I will turn you into a brand new nation. I'm going to pluck you out of that nation and I'm going to make a covenant with you and from you I will create in the midst of all the other nations my own special people, my own special nation. And it will begin with a family. It starts with an old man and a barren woman who should not be able to have any kids at all. But God miraculously by His power enables them to have children. And from that family, He grows organically and naturally the people of God according to the terms of His covenant with that man and his family. And all of God's people from that time to this, whether they're Hebrew or Christian, whether they're Jew or Gentile, they all have belonged to God on the basis of that Abrahamic covenant. Listen to how Paul says this over in, in Galatians. There's many passages we could go to here, but just a couple. This is Galatians chapter, chapter 3. In Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9, Paul says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. How do you become a son or a daughter, a child of Abraham? In other words, a member of his covenant, a member of his family? By faith. Not just by being born from the right parents who have the right bloodline, going back to Abraham biologically, but those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. All the nations get blessed when they get in Abraham, when they become members of his covenant family. So then, Galatians 3.9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Or at the end of that chapter, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, his descendants, his family. Heirs according to promise. So you believe in Jesus and somehow you get plugged into this family of Abraham. By faith. You don't have to be born into it naturally. You can get plugged into it by faith. Here he's talking to Gentiles. Right? Gentiles who are considering going back to Judaism. And he says, you don't have to go back to Judaism to get the, to get the promises. You just have to believe in Jesus. And when you're in Christ, you are connected to the Abrahamic family, plugged into the covenant, and all the promises of that covenant are yours. That's the idea. The church, therefore, is the covenant community. From Abraham's day to this one, the church is the community that's created by that covenant. It is the visible society established by that covenant. The church is an objective body. An objective body. It is an objective family. A people group. A nation. Founded on God's covenant. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul compares this visible covenant community, this objective people of God, he compares it to an olive tree, supported by its ancient Abrahamic roots, growing through history and stretching into Paul's own day, 
with natural branches growing on it, wild branches being grafted into it, and unfruitful branches being cut out of it. Jesus himself uses a very similar analogy in John 15, 1 through 10. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Any branch that's in me that doesn't bear fruit, my Father prunes, cuts off, casts away, it goes into the fire. But the other branches that are just as much in me that bear fruit, they're the ones whose fruit lasts. So there's a vine, an objective vine, and there are two kinds of branches literally growing on this vine. And the vine is Christ. Two kinds of branches growing on the vine of Christ. Fruitful ones who remain and unfruitful ones who are removed. And in our passage, Paul uses this same analogy, but he changes it to an Old Testament picture of Israel, which is the olive tree. So let's look at this. Just a few observations from the passage. He says in verse 13, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Right, so he's talking to non-Jews. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And then skipping, skipping ahead to verse 16, he says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And then he transitions into this metaphor of the olive tree, the end of verse 16, and he says, If the root is holy, so are the branches. So what's going on here? The root. What's the root? The root is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that Abrahamic covenant that's passed on to them. That's the root that supports, that's the Jewish patriarchs, the root deep in the Old Testament in Genesis that supports these Gentile branches that have been stuck onto the olive tree. That's the root. And it says, if the root is holy, all the branches are. The whole tree is sanctified and belongs to God. It's God's olive tree. It's a picture of, his, of the people of God. Old Testament, Hebrew Israel. New Testament, Christian Israel. The church in both testaments. And then he says this, verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off... And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root, that Abrahamic root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So some have been broken off and others have been grafted in. What's he talking about? He says these, that the Jewish people who, have, who are natural branches, they grow on this tree naturally by nature. Because they're the Jewish people. They are biological descendants of Abraham. They're growing on the tree. But some of them have been severed and cut off. And Paul says they've been cut off because they've rejected their Messiah. They've been broken off because of unbelief, he says in the passage. So here comes Jesus. They reject him. They prove themselves to be an unfruitful branch. And so... They've been removed. They're no longer part of the covenant people. And all the ones who believe in the Messiah stay in the tree. And then these Gentiles who are growing on these wild olive trees who aren't part of God's people, they believe in Jesus. And then he somehow removes them from that olive tree. And then he sticks them into this olive tree and they graft onto it. And they actually organically take hold of this olive tree and they become part of it. Real parts of it. And then he says, later, he says, you Gentiles shouldn't be arrogant towards those unbelieving Jews. 
their fathers are the whole reason there's a tree in the first place. You don't support the roots. Those roots support you. You shouldn't boast against, against Jews who don't believe in Jesus like you're better than them. Or you, and he just says, get rid of this snobbery towards, towards Paul's own people who himself was a Jew. And look what he says. After he says, do not be arrogant towards the branches, verse 18. If you are arrogant towards them, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then the Gentile has an argument. Oh yeah, Paul? Well, they were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And he says, that's true. Yep, verse 20, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not be proud, but fear. Why should you fear? If you're a member of this olive tree, why should you fear? He says you should fear, verse 21, for this reason. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, what in the world is going on here? We believe in Scripture, that the Scriptures are very plain, that if you are truly saved by Christ, if you've been reborn again, justified, adopted into, the, into God's family in a saving way, that you cannot lose your salvation. God, who has chosen you from eternity to belong to Him for eternity, doesn't lose His people in that process. He has chosen you and predestined you to be saved. And he's put all the means in place. That's where we come in to actually get to the end. He's put that in place. So those people do not, this, those people don't lose their salvation. But these people do lose their place in the tree. And we don't believe you can lose salvation. So there's something in the Bible, there's a category of people who are truly united to the tree. Truly united, not, a, not an object that gets stuck in the tree, right? Not someone throwing a ball that gets stuck up in the tree. That's not part of the tree, it's just it's, it's a thing that's stuck in the branches. No, these are branches that are growing. There's a category for being connected to the tree, but not being saved. There's a category of union with that tree through the covenant, that does not automatically guarantee salvation because some people are in the tree and they get cut out and some people who are in the tree who, uh, who don't believe will be cut out and then others can be grafted back in if they believe. So we have to make room in our minds for an objective people of God, an objective olive tree that you can grow in naturally or be grafted into unnaturally or supernaturally that doesn't automatically mean every, every branch in that tree is saved. Just like Jesus is the vine, but there's two kinds of branches in the vine. Fruitful ones that stay, unfruitful ones that get cut out. We have to make room for this category. And that's what the covenant is all about. God's covenant is based on these ideas in Scripture. The covenant creates an objective people that you can enter and leave. And just because you're in doesn't mean you're saved. 
but those who are elect are saved and will remain. They stand by faith. We have to make room for this category. And so, God's covenant is based on two key principles that we learn from this passage and many others. The first is the household principle. Because of our individualism, we automatically think of the church as a body of individuals. Separate units assembled in the same room once a week. Biblically, however, the basic unit of the church is not the individual, but the family. That's what's so precious and unique about being Reformed and Presbyterian is that the church is not this collection of atomized, separate, individual people who come do like, you know, public quiet time with a preacher on Sundays. But rather the church, local churches all the way up, are composed of families. That's the basic unit of a church, is a family. People who have believed in Christ and whose children are born into that olive tree. Think about it. If you have a wild olive tree, a Gentile, who gets grafted into the, to the covenant body, the olive tree, it gets grafted. It's not a natural branch, right? It, it, it came from a different tree and got plugged into this one. So it didn't grow there naturally. But what about when that branch has kids? Where does that come from? Does it get grafted in from the outside too? No, it grows. It grows on that tree. That's what your covenant children are. They're growing naturally on the tree. That's why they belong right here. They're, they bloom and grow in the covenant people, on the inside, not the outside. The basic unit of the church is that family. God's covenant is family-based, which means the church is fundamentally a collection of families, or as Paul calls it, the household of God, or the household of faith. A household is where the family lives, and there are kids who are born into that household. Ephesians 2.19, 1 Timothy 3.15. The church isn't just the building where we worship on Sundays as private individuals. No, the church includes your home and your whole family who lives in that home. Going to church is what we mean by getting up on Sunday, getting ready and going to a building. But being the church means when you go to bed and when you wake up, you're already there. This church includes your living room. This church includes your dining room table. This church includes where you live. It includes your family. It includes your lives. It isn't just this building and the programs we have and the ministries we have, but it's the lives you live right where you are, where God's put you. The household principle is key to covenant theology. This is why the apostles in the book of Acts practiced household baptism. And it's why we baptize our children. This leads to the second principle, which is the generational principle. If the church is an objective covenant family, then your children are included. They belong to the church because they have been born into the church, into the family. They are born into the covenant like the natural branches that grow on the olive tree. This means that children who are born into Christian families are born into the people of God. So they are automatically Christians. Automatically Christians. Now, that does not mean, of course, that they're automatically saved. 
and we do this. We say Christian equals going to heaven. Christian means saved. But there is a category for being a Christian objectively and being an unfaithful Christian, an unfruitful branch. A Christian in name only who shows up and, and participates but will hear on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do X, Y, and Z? And he'll say, no, you can't come in. So there's a category of, an, of a covenant-breaking Christian, a Christian who is not faithful to the covenant. Just like in marriage, an adulterous husband is still a husband. He's a bad husband, but he's still a husband. Or an abusive husband, or an abusive wife, or whatever. That person is still objectively married until they get a divorce. But they're still married even if they're not faithful in all the ways that they're supposed to be according to their marriage vows. It's the same here. We have Christians who are in covenant with God who might be really unfaithful to their covenant vows, who forsake their baptism, who walk away. And what you do for those kids is you go and you grab them by their baptism and you claim God's promises over them. They're not automatically saved just because they're Christians. That's why we have to nurture them in the faith and bring them up to confess Christ as Lord. No, it simply means that they all belong to the people of God by birth, and they are therefore heirs of all the blessings and promises of the covenant, which they will only inherit when they come to true faith in Jesus. They are pronounced heirs by baptism, and they claim their inheritance when they trust Jesus. You see how that works? And if these categories are sort of like jumbling around in here, and it's not quite clear how they fit together, maybe because I'm not doing the best job at explaining it, and maybe I could try harder next time. Or it might be because it's just, we're too Baptist. <laughs> In the back of our heads, it's just, oh, there's no such category. This can't be right. And it just goes to show that if we don't have these categories built in, we've missed out on an important part of our Presbyterian and Reformed approach to Scripture and church and Christianity. So let's conclude this way. Let me sum up where we've been. Since covenant children are Christians and members of God's household, it turns out that God does have grandchildren after all. In fact, we even find God making promises to these grandchildren in the Bible. God makes promises in the Bible to grandchildren. Let me just give you one example. These are all over the Psalms. Here's one. Psalm 103, 17 and 18 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Children's children. That's a grandchild. That's a promise from God in the Bible to grandchildren of covenant members who are faithful to their covenant. Do you believe this promise of Scripture to your children's children is still true today. Does God's covenant commitment to grandchildren apply to Christians or was that just for the Old Testament? 
and those promises don't count anymore. Did Christ come into this world to cancel this promise or to fulfill it? As Presbyterians, we say, based on Scripture, we say that Christ came to confirm this precious promise and that His Word is true yesterday and today and forever. Scripture says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope, Romans 15.4. Scripture says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Christ came to confirm and to fulfill, not to cancel and exclude children who had always been part of the covenant. Christ didn't come to kick them out. He came to fulfill. Let the children come unto me. So, what a comfort it is, Christian. What a comfort it is to know that God cares about your children and your grandchildren. Even if you don't have any grandkids yet, the ones you're going to have that God's planned to give you, God cares about them. And he loves them already. And he has a place for them in your family, and a place for them in his people, and a place for them in his church, and in his plans. They are valuable to him, and he loves you, he loves your kids, and he loves your kids' kids. Generation to generation. And he will be faithful to his covenant people. So may this word today stir you up to pray for your family with fervor, and with confidence, and with hope that God will always be true to his covenant and to his covenant people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that you have made your unshakable, unbreakable covenant with your people, a covenant of grace, a covenant that cannot be broken because it has been made and guaranteed by you. You have guaranteed its fulfillment for us, for all of your people. I thank you that you've given us the precious gift of this covenant that we can belong to you, that we can be, that we can be covenant members, that we can be descendants of Abraham by faith, that we Gentiles who did not grow on that olive tree can be grafted in and that our kids could grow and bloom on that tree and belong to you. What a gift to be told that you love our whole household, that our church includes our homes and our daily lives. But that's not separate from who we are as a Christian. It's not separate from the church we belong to, but it's part and parcel that your covenant promises are real and true, that Christ came to confirm them. So stir us up to pray for our children and grandchildren, those we have and those that you have for us in the future. And may we trust you with those covenant blessings. And we pray for children who have forsaken their baptism and have walked away. We pray that you would grab them by their baptism and you would bring them back, that you would remind them of their covenant place in the church, that they were heirs of a glorious inheritance that they have turned down. And may, they, may their hearts be broken that they have offended against such a treasure, that they have forsaken such a God. And may they remember the God of their mothers and fathers and come back and claim their promises and take their place like the prodigal son 
May the thing that drew them away become like the slop that that boy ate with the pigs, husks and ashes that cannot satisfy. And may they turn repentant, hungry for you, and come back to their parents, come back to their God, come back to their rightful place with us. And may they claim their place and their inheritance by faith. Lord, we trust you that you will be faithful from generation to generation. Help us to think through these things, to build these categories again, maybe, maybe for the first time for some of us. And help us to dig into Scripture and think hard about these things and discover what it means to believe as a, as a Reformed, Bible-believing Christian. We pray these things that you may be glorified and for our good and the good of our families. In Jesus' name, amen.